y'all, and welcome to the Podlog, serving up bite-sized tastes of the best theology. I'm your host, Megan Westra. Grab a plate, and let's dig in. This is episode two of two, uh, where I'm talking with the Reverend Lawrence Richardson and with Nathan Roberts, both of whom minister in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So if you missed the first part of this two-part episode, uh, I would encourage you to go back to the first one and check that one out because we talk about the last 90 years of history in Minneapolis, why the conversation really needs to be around uh, defunding and abolishing the police, not around just uh, reforming in some way. Um, And they also help us get grounded in, you know, finding the history in your own community. What are better questions that we can ask of our communities, of the leaders, um, of the elected officials, the institutions like the police department, among other things. And so uh, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that because while our attention is on and and was drawn to George Floyd's murder in Minnesota, the reality is that uh, racism and specifically in this instance, um, police brutality linked with racism is a problem all across the United States. United States. Um, and so, you know, while you may be, uh, tempted to kind of like look away or be like, well, that's not really an issue in my community. I'm from a suburb. I'm from a small town. I'm from rural America. Uh, the reality is no, it's a problem in every community. And so the questions that, uh, that Lawrence and Nathan help us think through at the end can help equip you for asking better questions in your community. Uh, Today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, how white people showed up in the aftermath um, of George Floyd's death. And so that goes for like, if you were out protesting, uh, how white people showed up on social media, different things like that. And so, um, so if you are a podluck listener um, who is black or a person of color, and you are like listening to this intro and you're just like, I just do not want to hear that conversation, then I totally bless that. And please turn this off and go find something else that you would like to listen to. Uh, This conversation is centered on white people and that's not a space that everybody wants to enter into right now. And I get that. And so I appreciate that you listen um, and if this one is not something that you want to be listening to, then I totally bless that. So we're going to talk today about how white people showed up and what we did well and what we did that was harmful or not helpful or just not not meeting the moment well. I think that one thing that I have felt over the years um, that I feel whenever um there is another kind of like surge of energy given to anti-racist work, usually sparked by the um, by the murder of another unarmed black person, often at the hands of the police. Uh, often there is this sense of like, oh my gosh, what can I do? How do I help? How do I fix it? And those aren't bad questions to ask, but they're not the only questions to ask. And sometimes there are deeper questions to ask um, that focus on ways that we have internalized racism and white supremacy. Um, And those are sometimes more uncomfortable to sit with and to wrestle through. And so if you are listening to this episode and you are white and you have been just, you know, begging like, oh my gosh, tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Hopefully we can help shed some light on that question. Or if you are white and you're listening and you're like, oh, I don't really want to process this. No, then you need to keep listening. Um, If you are feeling 
like, okay, well, you know, I've been trying to do things. I've been trying to, to say things. I've been trying to make statements or show up to protests. And I feel like I can't do anything right. And I don't want this to just be another place where people are telling me about how I'm not doing it right. Now, I want, I want you to hang with us. Um, I want you to listen. Um, and I want you to, to, to really take some time and engage uh, the, the conversation that we're having today. It's not... Um, it's not fun. I think that was something that we said in the last ep- episode that Nathan said that if, if racism, if overcoming racism was fun, we would have done it a long time ago. Um, so it, it's okay if it's not fun, um, that that's part of it. And so I invite you to listen to, um, maybe carve out time so that you're not like multitasking while you listen to the conversation, but so that you can really attend to what it stirs up in you, um, and how you can move forward from this space better. So once again, welcoming, uh, the Reverend Lawrence Richardson and Nathan Roberts to the, um, to the table as we dish up our best thoughts for you today here on the podcast. So picking up part two of our conversation, um, I'm here um, with Nathan Roberts and with Lawrence Richardson talking about what's happened in Minneapolis, what is still happening in Minneapolis, what is still happening in so many of our communities around the country. And thank goodness it's still happening um, two weeks later Um, and hoping that we can continue to build momentum, build um, build solidarity right now. And, and so this part of the conversation, um, we're going to be talking about protests, um, particularly about how white people showed up at protests. Um, cause there were a lot of us who showed up for the first time. Um, and if you listen to part one of this episode, which if you didn't, um, listen to part one of this conversation, then stop and go back to that one. Um, because you need that. Um, so lots of us white people showed up for the very first time for the, to the protests recently. Um, even though these have been, um, issues, uh, police brutality, racialized policing have been issued or issues for like forever. Um, but at least 90 years, if we're going to stick with the history that we covered in the, in part one of this. And so when you show up 90 years late to a conversation, you might need to think about some things. And so we're going we're gonna to do that today. We're going we're gonna to think about some things. Um, if you're a sports fan, uh, which none of us are, but we use the analogy of like watching game tape afterwards. Um, I was a musician for a long time. I guess I still technically am. You don't really forget that, but I don't do it as much now. I'm kind of talking after a set, like, how did that go? How did we play off of each other? Did, the, did that song land well? Whatever. So that's what we're doing here today. Um, so, yeah, talking about being in Minneapolis. So let's stay focused there. Um, I have been out protesting in Milwaukee, too, but I want to stay focused on, on Minneapolis for this conversation. Um, yeah. So, so what, what was happening with Minneapolis protests and, and what, how white people showed up? Well, I think that uh, one of the surprising factors was just that, how many white people there were. Uh, I went to 10 days of protests and I saw more white people than people of color. And that was refreshing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw white people protesting in terms of like being on the street with signs. Uh, I saw white people at the Capitol, I saw white people using their social media platforms uh, to speak out against certain things or to speak up for certain things. Uh, and so I saw a lot of, uh, and a lot of white-led organizations uh, as well. And that's, that's the piece that was the most surprising for me uh, to see uh, corporations and organizations uh, that either are run primarily by white people or that are catering to primor- primarily white customers uh, really take a public position on the importance of supporting uh, black people and uh, uh, discouraging police brutality and racialized violence. Yeah, I spent 
Um, the last two weeks, every day out protesting. Um, I went to one or two protests a day uh, for the last two weeks. And like Lauren said, um, I think I saw a proportional um, ratio of people to the people who lived in Minneapolis. Um, it looked like, you know, two thirds white people, one third people of color, which is about what our city is. And, um, that was super encouraging to me. I also saw more and more white people showing up and supporting and knowing what to do when they were there. Um, I think white people realized that, um, I, I can speak for myself. So. I used to think that when I was protesting, I would know that I made it when I was asked to be the token white speaker at the Black Lives Matter protest. <laughs> like in my hidden yeah. in my heart, like my shameful desire was like, me? You want me to speak on behalf of white people? <laughs> and like, I um, laugh because yeah, that is familiar. That is a familiar space. <laughs> yeah, like Nathan, yes, you're a good one. In fact, you're a great one. <laughs> Here's your star. And we yeah, and we want you to speak. Um, and I, I saw that was not the case in me um, personally, and I think it wasn't the case as much anymore, that um, people were showing up because they cared, because they um, – I think that in a lot of the videos, um, there, was a, there was always the um, – we were doing police brutality algebra, in that there was X plus police brutality equals uh, like a life taken, right? But there was always that moment, there was always an X, there was always something that white people wasn't, weren't sure about, you know? Why did he pull the gun before the videotape turned on? What? And there was always that X. And more and more um, white people living in the city were understanding what the X was racism and but this video was math it wasn't algebra it was one plus one equals murder and so no one had an excuse there was nowhere to hide in that video um there was nowhere for whiteness to hide um and so we saw more people um i also saw white people doing a better job at the protests supporting particularly black women who were at the center of the protests in Minneapolis. I'll give you a couple of good examples. Um, when we were out um, protesting around the precinct, uh, there were black women who, when we were tear gas, said, we need white people to move up to the front as shields. Yeah. And white people in mass moved up because they understood that the police would be uncomfortable tear gassing white people they also understood that it would look worse on the media mm -hmm. um they and there wasn't a question of like i don't know if we should do this there was a responding to leader black leadership i have never seen in the twin cities um which was just inspiring to me um there was a sense that white people would show up and ask for a job, and when they were given a job, they wouldn't request the job, they would keep the job. Um, and trust the leadership of the black women who were leading to say, no, I know what your job is. Mm -hmm. You're on water bottle duty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand that you're a rich business person. You know, you're you're on water bottle duty because you're you may be a really high powered lawyer, but you're about at a fourth grade level when it comes to racial justice work. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so you need to do water duty and, and that person was doing it and that was really inspiring too. Um, so I think those were all really, um, amazing things. I was seeing more and more white people posting, um, and posting when they didn't necessarily know what to post all the time. Um, I know that there was that black square that people posted and there were some different views on what, whether that was good or bad, but. What I saw people when I saw people doing the black square or black lives matter what I saw behind that was people who didn't know what to say but couldn't say nothing right um and and I was like, welcome, like you know welcome, like we need you mm -hmm. um and it's because it's hard to speak up when you don't know what to say, yeah, yeah. 
And I think that for, in my experience anyway, um, kind of going back to where we ended our last conversation and some of this like white families don't talk about race and about racial violence or racial uh, trauma that, you know, that we have committed, uh, speaking up and saying the thing, saying the wrong thing or saying something that isn't the most helpful comes with this deep sense of shame of like, Oh, I tried and I got it wrong. And so maybe I should just sit down and shut up. Like maybe my family was right and we just shouldn't talk about this. And so I, yeah, I think that one, let's talk about that and let's talk about what is helpful versus not helpful on social media in particular, because I feel like that is just a tender box for so many people for so many reasons right now, but also just that like that discomfort is okay. Like that you say something and then people offer you the gift of correction is a good thing. Um, and, and to learn and to grow from that. Um, at least in, in my life, that has been a, a gift once I've learned to be able to be uncomfortable in the midst of that and to see it as an invitation to speak differently, not to shut up. I often ask uh, people, what is the worst thing that can happen if you feel uncomfortable? Mm. Imagine that and then embody it and then ask the question. So then it's over and out of the way. Because the worst thing isn't death. The worst thing isn't that black people will all of a sudden rise up and, you know, treat white people the way that our ancestors were treated because you said the wrong thing or you felt uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so really just coming to terms with the fact that people of color feel uncomfortable every day for most of the day. uh, And we don't have the luxury of comfort in the same way. Uh, And because of that, uh, comfort can no longer be the goal. Um, uh, it has to be repair. It has to be reconciliation. It has to be uh, a renewed sense of, of justice and commitment to uh, more than just personal comfort. Uh, and so I often ask, what is the worst thing that can happen if you say the wrong thing and are made to feel uncomfortable because someone corrected you. Yeah, I would piggyback on that with um, when white people feel uncomfortable, um, really trying to center yourself in feeling embarrassed versus feeling ashamed that you said the wrong thing. So it can be embarrassing to say the wrong thing, um, but embarrassment tend to make you start sweating full body sweats and sputtering and desperately trying to justify yourself. A good example is if you're in math class and somebody asks you a question and you get it wrong, you might be embarrassed, but you don't turn around and go, no, I am good at math. (laughs) Like I am a good math person. Like everybody like, I need you to understand. We're not moving on until I make this point about how good, you know, centering yourself. Like, we don't do that around math because it's not, um, it doesn't tap into shame for us. Yeah. And so recognizing that when you're talking about race, you're often talking about shame and your deep, deep shame. And, and um, I don't always know. There's a myriad of reasons why people feel such deep shame, especially white people feel such deep shame around race. Um, it's because it taps into our deepest narratives about ourselves, which is that we are individuals and we don't like to be thought of as a group and talking about race is talking about groups. Mm -hmm. We like to believe that hard work got us what we wanted and talking about race calls bullshit on that Mm -hmm. uh, because it says that other people worked hard and didn't get what they deserved. Um, And it also taps into our big questions about safety and whether we are safe. And so you're dealing with some big narratives in white people when you talk about race. And so sometimes you end up having lesser conversations, but you never get down to the deeper conversations about what the true deep shame fear is. Um, 
also, um, white people need to just realize that we were not raised correctly about race. Um, um, I can give you another good example of like, when I was in fifth grade, we did a whole year unit on the Civil War. And the first class, my teacher in a private Christian school, who was also my football coach, like he he was the he was the totally total package teacher, right? Like he he would he was the teacher that would play football with you during recess, like the perfect fifth grade teacher. Um, I raised he said, what was the Civil War fought over? And I raised my hand and said slavery. And he said, no, it was states rights. I know why you would think it was slavery, but it wasn't slavery. It was states rights. And he went on to spend six months of our year-long episode, of a year-long thing, um, talking about how great the Southern generals were because they didn't have very good weapons that they were able to beat, win so many battles. I had the right answer. Mm-hmm. But then a trusted adult told me that I was wrong and then spent a year brainwashing me into respecting uh, Confederate generals. So no wonder I have a big reaction when someone tries to tear down a Confederate statue. Yeah. Because you're, it's not just about the statue. You're questioning my core fundamental role model, my fifth grade teacher, who's you're saying that that guy is not a good person. And that's a really, really tough thing that sometimes is entering in, in our, in cooking in the back of white people's brains. Yeah. That we have a lot of unsorted thoughts. Um, so when we get called out on social media about, um, taking down a statue, we operate from that like deep fifth grade place where I'm like, that guy was a good person and he liked Robert E. Lee. And so we really got to begin to reflect where our, um, where we're getting hung up and where those narratives are. Lawrence, did you um, things that were being posted on social media that were not helpful um, or had people reach out to you in ways that were not helpful? Yeah, you know, a couple of things and it's, <clears throat> one is uh, people feeling uncomfortable with being lumped into a collective group called white people mm-hmm. uh, because they have white skin. And part of me wants to say, now you know how it feels, right? Like it's really, really unfortunate that it took these sorts of experiences for people to understand that it's just really not fair to judge someone by the color of their skin and to lump them all into a group uh, of people and then to stigmatize that group. Uh, and so I've, I've had a lot of people contacting me saying, uh, that they're not like all the other white people or that they're not like that. Um, and looking for affirmation, uh, and confirmation that because of their, uh, connection to me, that they're okay. Uh, that they're, that they're somehow absolved from, the, the white guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other hand, I've, I've received a lot of wonderful, um, beautiful, amazing messages and some gifts and cards and people saying, I'm sorry that it took me so long to get what you've been talking about all along. Ever since I've known you, you've been at these demonstrations and you've talked about these sorts of things and I finally understand. And so, uh, on one hand, that, that makes me feel uh, uh, more sane and affirmed that people are finally seeing it. And, um, but the burden is uh, that I am then um, expected to do the emotional work and processing uh, with that person that only they and other white people can do for themselves. And so it's one thing to have a black friend that you can bring to parties and tokenize. And it's another thing to say, help me deal with my racism. Mm. That's, that's, that's a personal spiritual exercise that can't be put off on someone, especially your black friends or Latina 
friends. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a good word. Uh, can we, can we kind of go down that path a little bit? Because I think that the impulse is right. Like that's almost the same impulse that Nathan was naming earlier in the conversation of desiring when he first started to show up at, at protests to be like the one white guy who got the bullhorn, right? The, the good one. And I, I feel like that was a similar thread to what you were just naming Lawrence of like people reaching out and wanting to, to be assured, like, no, you're a, you're a good white person. And I'm, you know, I'm making gestures. I should do a YouTube show and not a podcast because I talk with my hands too much, but like, you know, wanting to be assured of their goodness, despite their whiteness. Um, and, and that feels like a, a real clear through line to me that there's still this, and I think some of that is, is white culture is very much built around this idea of mastery and we want to get it right. And we want to, you know, be the expert. Um, but it is a spiritual practice to deal with your whiteness. It is a spiritual practice to be able to look back at your fifth grade teacher and say, they were deeply formative for me in some profoundly beneficial ways in my life. And they brainwashed me into thinking that Robert E. Lee was a good person. Um, Mm -hmm. That requires a more sturdy and complex theology and spiritual life than many people have. And certainly people who were deeply formed by white churches. Um, So yeah, can we, can we talk a little bit about, spiritual practices to help us in this work to sustain or even to deal with uh, that stress response or that shame response of, of feeling called out. One of the things that I think is helpful for uh, white people is to recognize that this is a very difficult moment um, where a lot of our friends of color are at capacity emotionally. And so if you're going to send a message to them, just let them know in the text message, you don't have to get back to me. Right. Yep. And if that actually makes you too anxious to send a message that will not have a receipt to it, that you will not get recipient back to it, um, you need to examine the level of anxiety you're bringing into that interaction and whether that anxiety level is welcome at this time. The other thing I would say is you cannot ask any individual black person to tell you or of any race to tell you that you are one of the good ones because it is unfair on two counts. One If they say no, do they trust that you will not withdraw your support, your finances, or your friendship? Mm -hmm. Are you really clear about that in yourself, that you're ready to hear no? Um, If you're not ready to hear no, then don't ask the question. You should not ask the question right now at all. But after this is over, when you're done. The other thing is to note that having a cross-cultural interaction is inherently more stressful for people because there are more unknowns in interaction. When I interact with, so one of the jobs that I do is I have a school in Kenya that I help um, with 25 Kenyans uh, and they organize a school there for at-risk children. And whenever we're doing work together, we're always working like working on a budget across culture is different because there's a lot of more unknowns. There's more things that are taken for granted about even little things like what kind of receipts do you need? You know, like what kind of, uh, what does a picture represent? You know, all these different things that you can kind of assume when you're in the same class and race and culture, you no longer can assume a lot of those things. And so, um, there's just going to be a lot more conflict and a lot more ambiguity in, in relationships. And you got to kind of fortify yourself for that. Um, I'll give you an example at the black lives matter protest. I was uh, like Lawrence said also 
um, I was positioned between the police and the protesters. Um, but I was also protesting and I had a police gun pointed at my back um, as I stood uh, along the way, even though I was there as a peacekeeper. And so that was a really, really stressful moment. And I was stationed on one side with a Lutheran white pastor. And on the other side was a Native American person. There was a lot of Native Americans at the protest. And I have not spent a tremendous amount of time with Native American communities, nor do I have a tremendous amount of Native American friends. Um, and so I was already feeling a little stressed. And then this person pulled out um, a, a bundle of sage. What I now know is sage, which at the time I thought was a massive blunt. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, that is a huge blunt in the middle of this situation. Like we don't need that kind of other stuff happening right now. And the person turned to me and was like, don't be ignorant. Like, don't be this. like, this is sage. And I just felt a flood of shame and emotion and, and like my body felt like it was electric and I wanted to like physically move away from this person. So my first thing was I got to find another place to stand. <laughs> my second thing was to say, wait a second, I'm out here protesting for you. How dare you correct me for saying something inappropriate and racist? Like, can't you cut me a break? Because I'm out here for you. I'm not out here for me. And I was like, oh, that sounded real bad in my mind. That doesn't sound like somebody I want to be. Mm -hmm. So then I took a couple of deep breaths and I said, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. How can I make it right? And the person looked at me. I was like, just don't say that again. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I almost left the Black Lives Matter movement for that. <laughs> like, I almost went home. I almost left, I almost left my post. Because, and I was like, that is how deep the insecurity and shame. And I do this work constantly. Yeah. And I'm constantly you almost started fighting about how good you are at math in the middle of the protest. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, like, just recognizing that that is absolutely happen. Yeah. Like you got to prepare for it. Don't, the goal is not to never have that happen because if it never happens, um, honestly, like I was trying to make a joke with that person because joking is my way of dealing with stressful situations. Yeah. Same. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't land. Yeah. It wasn't appropriate. It wasn't kind. And I shouldn't have said it. Um, but it also didn't need to be distracting. We didn't need to center that moment in the work of keeping people safe at this protest. And I think that's where white people sometimes derail and they say, okay, now this protest needs to be about making sure everyone knows I'm not a racist. Yep. So I think that one of the things that I've experienced is whiteness makes us like forget our bodies almost, or at least expect them to not feel discomfort. Um, you know, like, like Lawrence, you were sharing earlier that like people of color are uncomfortable all the time. Um, and white people have this, you know, false, uh, and you know, whatever sense of, well, but I should be comfortable. I, I should be able to be comfortable all the time. And so then when I do experience similar feelings that you, you named so well, Nathan, of like, my body feels electric and I feel like I'm going to puke and like my blood rushes cold and I'm embarrassed. I'm sweating all over and I'm just like, oh my gosh. And the first impulse is to prove I'm good at math, right? To prove that I'm not racist and to get really loud about that and flustered. And part of that is also just because I don't know what to do with my body when it feels like that because I'm able to forget my body so often. Um, you know, as a woman, there are times where I am very aware of my body, but there's a whole lot more instances because um, I'm cis, because I'm, you know, in a heterosexual married relationship, because I'm a mom, because of, like because of all these other privileged intersections I exist on, I can just kind of forget about it. Like I, my body just kind of navigates space, you know, in ways that everybody else is comfortable with. Um, and in that moment, then I'm forced to reckon with, I feel this in my body. 
and I have to do something with that. And so I think, yeah, that that those deep breathing responses to, you know, in that space of conflict kind of say like, okay, what, what am I owning here? Oh, oh, yeah, that was my fault. Like I said the dumb thing there. I said the wrong thing there. This is not about them needing to, you know, make me feel like, oh, good. But yeah, but yeah, but good on you because you're here. Thank you for standing with us. No, 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 no. I stuck my foot in my mouth. I have to own that. And so thinking through like even like conflict resolution kind of things of like, I own my guilt. Like I own what I did wrong. Um, and then being able to, to sit with that and say like, okay, body, I know we're having a moment. I know you're uncomfortable right now, but, but we did do that wrong. We did do that wrong, but we're not in danger. We can just say, I'm sorry. I did it wrong. What can I do to make it right? And Lawrence, how do you like, and what have you seen be effective in those moments where somebody says something um, or breaks relationship or abuses their power in a small community like a church? Um, What does making it right and apologizing look like effectively? Um, You know, That's a good question. And uh, there's a number of things I would suggest. But first, I want to lift up, you know, uh, Patricia Hill Collins wrote a book called Black Feminist Thought, uh, Knowledge, Consciousness, and the Politics of Empowerment. And in this book, she talks about ways that uh, white people and specifically white women, uh, how they can educate themselves on certainly the history of race and racism, but also um, educating themselves on what it means to be white. And this conversation about, you know, what you feel when there is that shame uh, or embarrassment, uh, or you say the wrong thing and you want to make it right. uh, Sometimes you can't, you can't make it right. uh, Because what is, what is making it right if you have triggered uh, a traumatic emotional response. Uh, if if it's simply you've gotten your facts mixed up, you know, what's right is like Nathan said, just don't say that again, or just remember that this is what this is, or this is what this means. Um, and so I, I think self-awareness is certainly uh, part of it. Uh, and there is a, uh, also, the tendency for people to want to overcompensate, uh, and you know, uh, I, I don't want to sound uh, greedy or opportunistic, but I love meeting those people, right? Because I feel like I meet them and stop them before they, you know, empty their their trust funds on, you know, on every black organization that they googled, right? Uh, or they're <laughs> going to drop off, you know, food baskets to all of the black people that they know. And it's like, wait, wait, before you rush to do something, um, let's, let's figure out the best use of that energy. Um, yeah, we want to make it right in the moment. If I've said something or done something that has been uh, challenging or just flat out ignorant or racist, certainly I want to make that right. Um, but in the larger need to dismantle these systems, use that energy to call your your representatives to vote uh, according to your values and to show up and volunteer in spaces and places with communities of color that you work alongside, not that you just serve in, in uh, capacity of, of charity or being somehow hierarchically, hierarchically above or removed from. Uh, I think those are all ways that, you know, we can start to make it right. Um, And then also just simply letting people of color take uh, the lead, uh, not having to feel that you need to own every conversation or own every stage. Yes, if you're the one white person and you're the good one and you're handed the bullhorn, absolutely. You shout out loud and you take advantage of that moment and you own that stage. Uh, But centering the stories and the experiences and voices of people of color and talking to and with people of color instead of talking for or about them, I think that that would truly make a, a 
tremendous impact. Yeah, building on that, I had a short story that um, from a protest. We were protesting uh, for Bob Kroll, who's the police union um, person. He is a big Trump supporter and also has defended and rehired many, many cops uh, who were accused or um, had charges put against them for excessive force. And uh, so we were outside the protest and there was a young reporter. There was hundreds of people there and there was a young reporter who looked afraid to be there. In um, He was a young white reporter and normally they're sending out diverse teams of reporters, but this was just two white guys. Um, and so they asked me if I interviewed about what the protest was about. And at first I was like so honored and I was like, ooh, this is going to be great. And then um, I stopped and realized that I had not been per given permission to speak on behalf of that moment. Mm -hmm. And so I also realized that his fear might be prompting him to ask someone of a similar age and race and gender to be an interviewer, um, someone that he felt comfortable with. So I stopped it and I walked across. I said, I need to ask one of the organizers if I can speak to you and tell the story. So I walked across the street and went and asked um, this amazing female organizer, Nikima Levy Armstrong, who ran for mayor and was the head of the agency. And I thought was like, just like never going to give me permission. Um, and she looked up at me and she said, yeah, you can do the interview, but you need to take Andre. And Andre was standing there and he was a dad and we went back and then I asked um, the road Andre would like to be interviewed as well. And he's going to be interviewed first and then I'll be interviewed after him. And so Andre was interviewed and then I was interviewed. And then as we watched that night um, on the news, of the four people that were interviewed, Andre was the only black person that got interviewed that day, that black organized and black led protest. And I'm not saying that he wouldn't have found someone else, but I doubt he would have had the courage to go inside the crowd and find one of the lead organizers. And I think that is what I started to learn about um protesting and following other people's leads is really interrogating whether you've been given permission to speak um, in this moment about something but also not using not having been given explicit permission as an excuse to say silent and i think that is the hard tension of social media and being white in these moments um and so i think you want to own your voice in these moments, um, but not speak over other people. And especially when it comes to systemic opportunities, um, because uh, if I would not have known to do that, there might not have been any people of color or this person might've just found whatever. And we might not have heard from Andre and he was amazing. But that makes sense just based on some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, right? That like, it's always more stressful to work cross-culturally. It's more stressful to walk up to somebody that um, you don't have all those bridges in common with those, you know, uh, same race, same socioeconomic class, same age, right? Uh, we gravitate toward people that we're like. And so to be conscious in those moments of, of that and of saying like, okay, then how do I leverage this? How do I take this person operating out of just like, I'm just going to do what's most comfortable and instead say, okay, but let me help you do what, what would be good, which is to hear from Andre. Um, and I think to keep that awareness in those moments when so much of what's inside of us, like that was your bullhorn moment, Nathan, you got the bullhorn. You got to be the good one. And so to, to be aware enough of our own motivations or our own where we're at with that to say like, no, I need to go check in first. I need to go ask permission first because I don't, I don't own this mo movement. I don't own this protest. So I don't get to speak for it. Um, and that's why it's important to do the work, not just on social media, not just when you show up to a protest. Like this is ongoing 
deeply spiritual work that you do constantly. And it, it's deeply spiritual and it certainly is ongoing. And if we're talking about just the last 90 years, uh, not the last 400 or 500, but just the last 90, there are 90 year olds still living, right? Yeah. So that means that this is so deeply ingrained into our our systems, our beings, our bodies. Uh, and uh, Resma Manikin, who wrote this book called My Grandmother's Hands, he does a lot of work with connecting people to their bodies uh, so that they can move that trauma through their bodies uh, in a way that allows them to not uh, push that trauma out onto other people or to uh, uh, implode either. Uh, so one of the things that I think we can really be mindful of, especially for white people, is that this work is, A, not supposed to be easy, but when it's deeply spiritual work, you're creating the conditions within you to be able to sustain more and more of the work. Um, and like Nathan had said earlier, you know, brilliant minds, people that are, you know, physicists, we've been able to send people to the moon and we are creating amazing medical technology and yet most of us cannot have a conversation about race without being uh, emotionally or physically or spiritually triggered. And that, that says a lot about what we prioritize. And so just knowing that, yes, we have to certainly have grace for ourselves. We will get it wrong. Um, being able to say, I'm sorry when we do and being able to learn and do things differently. Sure. Um, and also understanding that we can't not do the work. We can't leave it for the next generation any, any longer. Yeah, I always, I have a few mantras um, that I say uh, that I, I use as um, sort of centering words. But one of them is that um, my parents are older than Ruby Bridges. Mm. And Ruby Bridges was the first uh, black girl to go to an integrated school that my parents are older than her. And, and one of the great tragedies uh, and, and practical twisted jokes of modern technology is that uh, cameras became color prolific in color in the early seventies. And so 1968, 1969, most pictures are in black and white. And so it just feels like there is a valley of a million years between. And those are just smashed against each other. We are not deep into this work. Um, and the trauma that passes down from generation to generation is there. And the people who yelled at Ruby Bridges and through things go to school, their kids are in their 60s. Yep. The people that were raised in that house, the things that they heard, the, the conversations they heard around the dinner table about why we should not be together, about why people are like this, about this, um, those conversations were had. Um, and then after that, um, the boomers largely um, – were either explicitly racist or mostly silent on race. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't know what to say. They hadn't been raised right. They hadn't been told good stories about race. Um, so they mostly stayed quiet. And um, when race was brought up, especially you can see it in television um, during the Obama years, we see um, Parks and Rec and um, some of these beloved TV shows where culture is only to be addressed if it's fun if it makes the situation more fun. Yeah. Uh, you can talk about it if it's, a, if it's a different food or if it's a piece of clothing that we like or it's an accent. But the hard work of how America sees us is, is still taboo. Um, and, and I think that taboo that we run up against is triggers embarrassment and shame in us too. Um, I also want to add that for me personally, 
one of the things that I continue to come back to in the spiritual practice is finding myself in the ministry and work of Jesus. And um, I find everything that happened in Minneapolis in the last two weeks, in the last few weeks of Holy Week, mm-hmm. um, that Jesus um, was brought into the temple. Uh, he dealt with money in ways that the police and religious authorities and the government did not appreciate. He uh, turned over tables. He was then a uh, police were dispatched to use police brutality before the trial. He was beat up and whipped uh, before the trial. He was then given a sham night trial where he was refused to participate. He refused to speak in the trial because I believe he knew it was a sham trial and he did not want to participate in it. Um, his friends ran away and abandoned him and experienced the shame of not being allies in that moment. He was then condemned to death without justice um, and lynched on the edge of town. Mm. And when we see the gospel story as a lynching and a city that watches as each one of their social institutions breaks down in front of them and and the outpouring of um, emotion from the city that some people are trying to say that Jesus deserved it. They're calling for him to be killed. Others are weeping. Um, Others are at the foot of the cross, begging for mercy. Others are trying to organize um, a response that, that these stories of uh, lynchings at the hands of the state, at the hands of police brutality, are at the very foundation of our gospel story. And unless we are fully, uh, Jesus said, follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And there is a point at which you have to decide whether you engage in those moments when someone is killed. There, there is a moment where Martin Luther King marched on Washington with me, and you either did or you didn't. There are moments where you either showed up in this moment or you didn't. And if you didn't show up in this moment because you didn't know what to say, because you weren't spiritually grounded, um, then do that work now. So that the next time something happens in your town, you are ready. Do the training now. Read the books. I mean, Lawrence has lived this. Megan, you've been doing this for the last few years. I've been working on this. this is a marathon. And if you haven't been training at all, like, of course you're flat footed. Good. And, and I'll drop the links in addition to the books that, that Lawrence, you mentioned earlier, I'll also put the link to James Cone's the cross and the lynching tree in the show notes. Um, Cause that's, I mean, that's right up the alley that, that Nathan, you were just talking about that Cone just does that work so brilliantly. Um, that's right. Yeah. Because we have to do the work. And I would add to that, uh, we certainly need to be conditioned for the long haul and we need to develop spiritual endurance and emotional intelligence is also something that it, you know, will only help in this effort. Uh, understanding that our identity is not connected to what we get right or what we get wrong uh, or what we say or don't say. Our identity is not what we do. Um, and, uh, but our life is on the line. All of our lives are on the line. Uh, and if we act from that place of uh, understanding that we're all intricately woven together, we are connected as one human family. And if one part of the body or one part of the family is not well, then none of us are well. And we see that disease showing up in acts of racism and acts of violence um, and in trauma and in poverty. Uh, So also understanding that, yes, there's a lot of books to read. 
There's a lot of physical uh, practices as well as spiritual practices, grounding yourself, uh, uh, implementing essential oils, uh, certain uh, meditative practices, uh, prayer certainly uh, works. Um, and then, you know, the good old-fashioned confession. Confession really does a lot for the soul. And if much of the discourse around race and white families has been to uh, uh, really avoid discomfort uh, and shame, then I can understand how confession would probably evoke similar responses. Uh, but, but the opposite is true. When you confess for even your silence in the face of injustice or violence, uh, when you confess for your ignorance of not knowing your family history, or you confess of not knowing or the history of the United States and, and really uh, these beloved leaders that we hold dear, when you confess that you still love them in spite of the fact that they owned slaves and that they brutalized their slaves or that they were, you know, bigots or racist or whatever the case may be, holding that tension and saying this person, I still respect and love them because I fell in love with them or I grew up with them or they were my grandpa or they were my football coach. And they also did these horrible things and being able to name both of those things and then create an environment where you can hold up that history and you can know those truths and you don't have to attach personal value or self-worth uh, or emotional energy to those truths, but you can commit to not uh, reliving those uh, those moments or not perpetuating those actions. And unless we know our history, it's going to continue to show up in so many different ways. Uh, and I'll, I'll uh, end by saying um, we aren't fighting racism. Um, we, we are opening ourselves up to an opportunity to build the beloved community. And for Christians, we're opening ourselves up to the opportunity to bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth as we pray every time we say the Lord's Prayer. And if we want that kingdom to actually be real and be manifested, it can only come through us. And we have to be strong enough spiritually to be able to to be the midwives that bring that spirit and that revival and that peace to the earth. If, if we crumble because someone told us the truth about ourselves, how could we be vessels through which the Holy Spirit can bring peace to the earth? Wow. That last line that Lawrence left us with if we crumble because someone told us the truth about ourselves, how could we be vessels through which the Holy Spirit could be pre bring peace to the earth? I have just been sitting with that since we recorded this interview. And then even as I was editing today, uh, just really hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, somebody who is a recovering perfectionist, in addition to being a recovering racist, there is such a tendency to want to just crumble when correction is offered. But that's not the invitation. And if I truly do desire to grow and follow Christ and become a better vessel, that vessel through which the Spirit can move and work to bring kingdom of God to bring peace on this earth, then I need to be able to face the truth about myself when someone is gracious enough to offer it to me. And so I am sitting with that personally, and I hope that you are finding things in this episode that you are sitting with as well. As always, thanks for tuning in to the podluck. And I hope that these two episodes on what's happening in Minneapolis can serve as a diving board of sorts to help us dive into the deep waters of what's happening around the country and in our own backyards. 
to ask better questions, both of our elected officials and our institutions and our communities, but also in our own hearts and our lives. So thank you for being part of the conversation and for continuing to show up. Next week, we'll be back to some episodes on coronavirus because it's still happening, y'all. And in many states, they're seeing some of the worst rates that they've seen in the pandemic yet. And so just because we are tired of being socially distant and wearing masks and doing all of those things does not mean that the virus has gone away. Um, it just means that now we really need to be committed to the work of keeping each other safe um, from the spread of this virus. And so we will be back there next week, um, continuing to kind of go back and forth in these dialogues that we, we really do need to hold together. Um, that racism is a public health crisis and coronavirus is too. And we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I understand that that is challenging for some of us as a deeply uncoordinated person. I understand that that is difficult for some of us. Um, but we need to work to that end. So make sure that if you have not yet subscribed, that you do so, so that you don't miss any of that. Uh, I have links in the show notes um, to the books that were referenced in this episode. Um, that Lawrence mentioned um, My Grandmother's Hands and also Black Feminist Thought and then The Cross and the Lynching Tree, uh, was also mentioned. And so those links to those books are in the show notes. I'm sure that many of you are inundated with books right now. Um, but those are also good ones to pick up. So, uh, pick those up as you are able. Um, there's also information in the show notes about Nathan and, um, and Lawrence and where to find their work. Um, so follow along with them, pick up their work as well. And until next time, I've been your host, Megan Westra. Thanks so much for tuning in.